You're listening to Understanding Disordered Eating with Rachel Heinemann. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and certified eating disorder specialist. On this weekly podcast, we talk about all things psychoanalysis and eating disorder recovery. It's a combination of interviews with experts in psychoanalysis and eating disorders and some solo episodes where it will just be the two of us. The goal of the podcast is to help you try to understand a little bit more about yourself, gain a deeper understanding for why you do the things you do, and bring you one step closer to a healthier relationship with food and yourself. Hey, hey, episode 107. Now, before I get into what our episode is about and who we're talking to today, I wanted to share some really exciting news that I've been working on for a while. My guide to journaling has just been dropped, shared, published, whatever word we use these days. And it is a really, really great way to start trying to understand a little bit more of the function of your eating disorder. So the way that I structured the journal prompts is that if you're a free-floating, free-form journal person and you just want to take all the prompts and write as you do, you can totally do that. But if you're not and you really need a lot more structure in terms of how do I start understanding this? How do I even structure my journaling in terms of like getting yourself to start and things like that? It's all there. So what you got to do is just go to my website. The pop-up will come in about a few seconds. You sign up for the freebie. It doesn't cost you a thing. And when you sign up, the emails will come and it'll show you exactly how to start. So if you're looking for something more than just the podcast episodes, and you're looking for something practical, and you're looking for a way to start actually thinking more specifically about you, your relationship with food, how this all applies to you, and how you can get to the deeper meaning of your eating disorder, go grab your copy. And of course, let me know how it goes for you. The emails will keep coming just to keep you motivated and keep you structured. So you don't have to do anything besides for the journaling. And now about our actual episode, I have with me today, Dr. Dina Satir, who is a lovely friend and colleague who has been working in the eating disorder field for over 20 years. She focuses on the psychoanalytic treatment of eating disorders. So she is our person. We love to hang out with those people and she's all that. So a little bit about our conversation. We're talking about the rules of the game the rules of the therapy game specifically, that I think we don't really get the guide or the rule book before we start therapy. And sometimes, for some people might be intuitive, for some people who might be in therapy for a while might sort of, you know, get it inherently. But not all of us do. (laughs) And what Dana and I do is go through what the rules are, and more importantly, why. Because when we look at how the therapeutic relationship actually works, it's the foundation of if therapy and trying to understand the deeper meaning of your behaviors and actually working toward recovery or really whatever goals that you're, that you want to work toward. It's kind of the foundation of it. And if you don't have the foundation down pat, then you really have nothing. And so. In order to get to where you want to go, you got to build the car. And we're talking about how to build the car. Um, (laughs) Funny enough, the interview is actually full of metaphors. So if you like metaphors, you're in for a treat. 
a little bit more about Dina. So Dr. Satir is a clinical psychologist and a certified eating disorder specialist. Like I said, she's been in this field for decades. She received her doctorate from Boston University, completed her internship at Cambridge Health Alliance and Harvard Medical School. Her scholarship was focused on the treatment relationship. So it'll give you a little bit more insight into why we're talking about this specifically with Dr. Satir. And specifically the therapist experience, (laughs) she's a psychologist, that makes sense. She has received grant funding from the American Psychoanalytic Association and Children's Hospital in Colorado. And she was awarded an early career fellowship, which is not a small thing, from the American Psychoanalytic Association in 2013. She teaches courses on eating disorders and psychotherapy at the University of Denver and TCK webinars. She hosts study groups. She provides case consultations. She is like one of the go-to supervisors in our field. Her practice is in Boulder, Colorado, and has published so many articles and ideas under the umbrella of the psychoanalytic treatment of eating disorders. So I'm so excited to share this conversation because (laughs) Dana is one of those people that you sort of read her work and you know about her, but you don't actually get to talk to her. And now we get to talk to her. So let's just jump right in. Okay, so I'm very excited to talk about what we're talking about today. I think that it's going to be a little bit of an abridged version of things we've talked about thus far and probably will continue to talk about forever and some of the work that you've put out. But, you know, I just, I love how we were saying this is like the rules of the game. Like, how does it actually work? Not like in a board game sort of way, but almost, yes, in a board game sort of way. And maybe to sort of help us jump in, can you share where you're coming from with this quote rules of the game and why does it seem important to you? I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad we can be in dialogue about this. And I think it's, of course, an opportunity for both of us to think about these things and highlight something that isn't altogether Mm -hmm. obvious for anybody coming into therapy. So I became interested in the topic of clinic therapists' reactions to working with patients with eating disorders because I really wanted to know on the inside what did it feel like to uh, be a therapist and especially working with people were suffering from eating disorder symptoms. And what we found in the research is that even though some people in the medical profession will kind of say, gosh, I find working with patients with eating disorders really hard or challenging, people who have entered the field and practice in the field actually have very different reactions fortunately as well. Yeah, fortunately. (laughs) Fortunately, that's a good thing that we're practicing. We selected to specialize in this work. One of the findings is that therapists working with patients with eating disorders find the work meaningful and purposeful. They're sort of motivated by the challenges that can come up, whether that's maybe the length of time in treatment, sometimes ruptures in the therapy where the therapist and the clinician aren't on the same page or don't feel on the same side. So I like to think about that in the broader picture that the therapists that are working with patients with eating disorders are committed, mm-hmm. deeply committed. And there's sort of a, a kind of overarching idea of uh, we're in this together. Uh, so I think when we're kind of moving into the rules of the game, this is sort of part of the platform maybe we're launching from, which is providers want to do this and they want to be there. And what it unfolds in that process is 
hopefully something we're going to talk more about. Yeah. I love thinking about it as it's a little bit playful, but it's also not in terms of the quote rules of the game, because rules implies that there's the way to do it. And this is almost like the only way to do it. And if you break the rules, then you have to go to the principal and sit on the bench or whatever it is. (laughs) But the game is like, well, if we all sat down to play a board game or a video game or whatever it is, they're obviously there. We have to like pull out the rule book or back in the day when we actually like played physical games, who does that anymore? (laughs) But you have to pull out the rule book because otherwise, how do you know how to play? How do you know how to maximize the opportunities in this game and who wins? And I mean, all of that, like you can't actually enjoy it if there are no rules. Right. And where do you start? I think, right. You know, to see, okay, what direction I'm, I'm thinking of Monopoly. If anybody That's, good, still that's better because I was thinking of shoes and ladders and I was like, this is <laughs> developmentally inappropriate for the people who are listening. So. <laughs> um, no, we're going to collect money in this game. I so, like this game. Okay, good. Okay. And hotels well, and property and real estate with very low interest rates. <laughs> Yes, it appeals to our New York-centric mentalities. Right. So, you know, even like what direction do you walk around the board? Where do you stay? Mm -hmm. How long do you stay there? And also, what is sort of this universal idea? What are these universal ideas we're all operating from? Mm -hmm. No surprises there. We want it to be predictable. We want everyone to kind of read that rule book, so to speak, page by page together so we know when we start when we start where we are and of course what piece you chose to play with oh yeah i like that so if we think about therapy as a game it's not but if we think about it that way yeah it's playful i think too that's true that if we can't play yeah. in therapy then i think that that's something that we ought to talk about because there is some sort of playfulness that that is is appropriate to have and i know that we're not about to create a rule book for the game of therapy here. But I wonder if we can try to rip out some pages and really look at what some of the rules are. And I think what I'm implying more specifically is the rules, quote, rules around the setup of therapy, what we might call the frame. And maybe we can expand from there. But first, like, what what are those rules? When we refer to a frame or something like that, what, what are we talking about? Yeah. So I don't know. We'll pivot maybe from our analogy for a moment. Uh, <laughs> it can't be a game all, all the time. And maybe more to play with the creative parts. I think the term the frame, just to maybe make it come to life, came more with our an artistic bent. Like why, when you paint a picture, would you have a frame around it? Mm-hmm. And again, like you're saying, it's not that that's rigid. But the frame would sort of tell you, okay, where's like the edge? I don't want to paint over the edge. Mm -hmm. I want to stay on this canvas. But I know what the top, bottom, left, and right, where they are. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like when I make puzzles, I love to do the edges first. So I have all all the outside pieces. And then I can do the rest inside. It's exactly the same thing. Right. That's the approach. Let's look where these things are on the periphery or sorry, on the borders And then we can feel the freedom to put all the pieces on the inside, create 
you know, co-create the art together. And maybe mm-hmm. that's where the analogy breaks down. But I think one of the, the rules, as it were, is they relate to some of the things that are predictable, that are unchanging. So one of them is we have an allotted set time that we meet. Mm-hmm. And hopefully it's a reliable time that we meet every week or at, at whatever frequency. So we both know, okay, Tuesday at 9 p.m., 9 a.m. Oh, God. Uh, after, <laughs> I know. After you got your Starbucks on the way, we're going to be sitting down together. And that's your time. And that's our time together. And so you can count on it. You don't even need to think to yourself, what do I do on Tuesdays? You You know, every Tuesday, this is where I'll be. And so then you can kind of relax a little bit, hopefully. Okay, Mm -hmm. I know the time. I know how long we'll be together. So those are maybe more logistic, but I think they're part of what form that border. Yeah, and I think even just going a little bit beyond just the time, what sort of protects Mm -hmm. that if we're thinking about a, a picture frame or a frame for, let's say, a blank canvas of art. And so we can sort of do whatever it is, but only when we have the frame. So when there's a set time, But also when there's a set time, it sort of excludes outside time. And this is what it gets so tricky because modern day is is very different from original writing. And so there's texting and and calling is so much simpler and email. There's so many different ways to contact. And that ultimately has the potential to really make the outline fuzzy, which means that it's not so clear cut anymore. Where do I make my art. Yeah. I think then it could sometimes feel permeable, right? Yeah. Like, how do I make this edge even? And I know, tell me if this sort of fits what you're thinking. I know some clinicians who actually ask patients to leave all their electronics outside of the session. Oh, wow. Yeah. In other words, this is going to be the time where we're together. And we're going to, quote unquote, eliminate those distractions. And I know there's sort of this neuroscientific research saying if your phone is even five feet away, you're thinking about it, unconsciously even. So it is our first um, love after all. (laughs) Oh my gosh, your arm is vibrating. So, you know, in maybe an effort to try to move away from the outside world and keep it on the inside we might do other things to try to eliminate those distractions as well. So it becomes the un- a unique space. And I've had patients tell me it's the only time where I sit and talk to somebody for 50 minutes with no distractions. Wow. Oof. Yeah. Oof. Well, I, I guess that at least they have it once a week or however frequently they're doing it. Right. It's something. Yeah. yeah. Were you thinking out something else along those lines in terms of the, the sort frame. of memory? Yeah. I think that there are, that's the main one because it's ultimately like the, I hate to use this word, people use it so frequently and it sort of means not that much anymore, but it's almost like the container for the space that we can then, you know, I guess this is sort of like mixing analogies. We can fill the container with whatever it is, but it's it's empty and and the same idea where it has a start and finish. Um, So there's the time. I think that it gets really tricky because a lot of the other quote rules are related to the relationship that are, you can't just say, oh, this is how it is like a time because on the other side is, is another person. And as much as we love to 
put a therapist or whoever we're working with on a pedestal or at least just at an arm's length because we don't really know them as much as they know us very well, it makes it very tricky because they are a person. So I think the rest of these, like, I'll use the term rules again. I just can't find another term. The rest of these rules are going to be a little bit more tricky and we'll unpack all of them. But I think that when we talk about a frame, there is the time, there is the limitations mostly of the relationship and how the relationship is very, very different than any other relationship you have had or will have again in your life. Yeah. And that is not necessarily everyone knows going into therapy. Mm-hmm. Right. That, how could you? you because know, you've never done it. <laughs> you've never done it. What does it mean to be talking to someone about some of your deepest feel deepest experiences, but not necessarily know that about the therapist. There's mm-hmm. this asymmetry that you would never have in another kind of relationship. And you might sort of know more about the other person or would know more about the other person, but that's not something you can take for granted in this unique relationship. So yeah. How do you have feelings about a relationship where you don't know a lot about the other person? Right. How do you have feelings about somebody when you're mostly talking about yourself during therapy? You know, mm-hmm. even though we're talking we're talking about the frame because there's just sort of no framework for the relationship in in a way. Mm-hmm. How you come, you know, experience that is like you said something that's going to be unique to everybody. Yeah. And how close you want to get to the edges of the frame will also vary by person and and maybe change over time in a therapy too. Exactly. So the reason why I wanted to preface this with that it's complicated and tricky is because this it's not just like time where time is constant. So, you know, if I do a 45 minute session, 45 minutes is the same for you as it is for me. And so there's no almost negotiation about that. Whereas with the relationship, There kind of is because we're talking about personal style here and, you know, it's not going to be constant. And so there are some things that probably, you know, therapy would benefit from being constant, but there is always room for interpretation. And of course, you know, what I'm assuming is collectively hundreds upon hundreds of, I don't even know, even more hours of supervision is probably trying to figure out what that is. Yeah. I think that's such a good point because I think it is fluid between two people and internally. Mm-hmm. Let's say, tell me if you think examples would be useful. Yeah, let's do examples. Okay. Let's say your therapist is experiencing a medical event mm-hmm. and it's going to directly impact the therapy. They may have to change their schedule more often to go to appointments. So it's not something happening in their personal life that you're not directly exposed to necessarily. It's going to be something that comes up together. And so as a clinician, you want to think about what would be helpful to disclose about this. Mm -hmm. I don't want my patient to worry about me. Would it be useful not to tell them anything? Then they're, you know, then they might you know, their mind might go running and they might feel, you know, scared or Mm -hmm. think, you know, these kind of awful things. But it might be something you want to keep private. You may not want to share 
that many details. So I think there's this dance in terms of the therapist's personal life, in terms of how this could impact therapy, and with each individual patient, of course, we can't predict, but how might that impact them, mm-hmm. knowing what we know about them, where we are in the treatment, and what their history suggests? You know, did they have to take care of a sick parent? Mm-hmm. Okay, we might want to think about that and have that frame be a little tight in this spot. Or let's say there's somebody who idealizes us. It may be sort of um, useful to know, you know, that we have personal experiences that we have to navigate as well. Yeah. Well, so just to clarify here, we're talking about, again, another quote here of the word rule is that in therapy, the therapist doesn't share about their personal life and the person in therapy shares basically everything about their life. And of course, I'm all for therapists bringing their personalities and their own take on things and and not being like this completely neutral non-person. But in terms of what the general rule of thumb is that the therapist doesn't bring that much into into the therapy. And so when something like this is happening, you're faced with a dilemma of I can't not bring it in because I have to move my schedule around. And, you know, it's it's almost like disrespectful to a certain extent, just be like, yeah, I'm not hey, going to be here, right? and here and here and here and just no, no excuses or no, I think that's no reasons mean to keep it such a mystery. Yeah. Uh, and so you're going to share yeah. something, but because it's already, quote, breaking the frame and, and getting really fuzzy, I think what you're saying is how does each person deal with this. And ultimately, it's going to be different from therapist to therapist and patient to patient. But I think also what you're alluding to here is that as clinicians, we know our people and we know, but I mean, we don't know 100%. And so that's where room for things to happen happens. But if we know this person has had some experiences that will make them have a reaction, it is on us to hold whatever sort of boundary would be much more helpful for the person so that they're not then doing the work that they've done their entire life doing. Absolutely. And I think it's being sensitive that way. And we have an opportunity to ask patients, what did that feel like? Yeah. Is Mm -hmm. that similar to other experiences maybe you've had where you've known somebody to have, you know, a medical issue? You know, how do you relate to that? Do you feel compelled to ask questions all the time? You know, do you, will you worry about me in between sessions? Mm -hmm. So I know we were kind of discussing this idea and another metaphor maybe, but therapy is this kind of living lab Mm -hmm. where you get to talk about ways you're relating to somebody in real time and you get feedback. You know, it's not sort of something maybe that you're going to be You're not going to just have to think about it on your own. Mm -hmm. And there's a chance to kind of repair, like you're saying, okay, I used to have to take care of a sick parent. What's it like to know my therapist is going to hold this for me and share what they think I need to know, but not sort of overwhelm me with it? You know, oh, here's what's happening in this appointment. Or, oh, I got some news that was challenging. I'm going to get this procedure. No, you're sort of knowing what you need to know and the therapist is holding that for you. Yeah. I think something that comes up pretty often, especially when working with people with some form of eating disorder is that, I mean, not everyone, of course, but a lot of people have been the person in their family that just sort of keeps everything together. 
And so when we think about if, if let's say I have a need, whether it's I'm being, I'm really overwhelmed by something or whatever it is, then very often the person sitting in front of us will take that on almost naturally, not because they're even aware of doing that, just because that's what they've always done. And so that's not on it's them. automatic. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. I, I've noticed that in my practice too. Often patients with eating disorders have been these parentified kids mm-hmm. with these sort of lost childhoods, but because they've been, you know, forced to take care of their parents, often emotionally. Right. And so you would expect that kind of automatic way of being to show up. And so what a different experience to have your therapist be able to pay attention to and care about you, even though they may be having their own experience because they can take care of themselves. Right. Well, that's the key that they can take care of themselves. Yeah. Right. And I think we have to be very careful as clinicians to make sure that we can take care of ourselves in, in every definition of the word. I think that's such a good point. Taking time off, mm-hmm. recognizing when you're sick, not going to work. I mean, all of that is sort of modeling in a way, like I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take care of my body. I'm not going to, I'm going to decide this for me and also for us. Right. Which is also, and this is something else that, that comes up. So sort of like a branch off of this is that let's just say, for example, I, not necessarily when I'm sick. I think that most people understand if I'm sick, like I'm not going to be working. I, I really, really hope that that's a given. Yeah. But let's just say I want to take a vacation, you know, not terribly frequently, but I want to take some time off. And, and it's not like it's urgent or necessary to take vacation right now. But I think that that's often something that could be interpreted as like um, almost hurtful. It's like, well, I'm going to step away and I'm not going to respond for a week. And how is that in a very direct way actually beneficial to the relationship? Yes. I think two things. Tell me your thoughts. One is, how do we navigate separation together? Mm-hmm. which is part of every relationship. Mm-hmm. What happens when we're not together? And then what happens when we come back together? And that kind of speaks to, you know, the overused word of attachment. <laughs> I was just uh, thinking that, yeah. Or you too. And, and then, the, yeah. Right. The other part I'm thinking of too is what do we think happens when your therapist goes away? Do you think they're not thinking of you at all? Mm-hmm. Do you think they want to get away from you? Do you think they stop caring? And so all of that juiciness (laughs) is part of how we can say, well, wait, what happens maybe when your partner goes away? Mm -hmm. Are you afraid you drop out of his mind? Do you think he's not coming home the night he gets back, he or she, they get back from a business trip because they don't want to see you right away? And so all these I think moments, in addition to a therapist or another person needing a chance to recharge, explore a new place, whatever that may be, spend time with their family, it also allows us to see, well, what happens in the spaces between? Mm -hmm. What happens when you think about what's going on in my mind? If you're not at the forefront, are you still there? Do Mm -hmm. I still care? Yeah. So, yeah, I think... I think it's an opportunity, not that it's easy, 
And not that the feelings may not be strong, but like anything in the therapy relationship and the rules of the game, we can talk about it, hopefully. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, I think that's the key that for some people, the emotions are really, really intense and it's so hard to talk mm. about. Like I'm thinking about, about these examples from succession from perhaps the most dysfunctional family ever to have not lived because I guess they're technically fake, but not exactly fake that yeah. their tolerance for people who are either leaving or just hurtful toward them is basically none. And I, and I speak for like basically every single character in... Do they cut the other person off? Do they yeah, have like a... and they lash out like, you know, very typical... This is like going into too much of an analysis, but Tom's reaction to Shiv and he's just sort of very, very conniving about it. And if we can slow down for a second, not these characters, but like us in our situations, if we can slow down and be like, that actually was so incredibly hurtful when you said something like that or when you left. Yes. And now I'm experiencing all of these things. And even to verbalize, I have this urge to hurt you and to, to hurt you with my words, to whatever it is. How powerful can a conversation like that be? Yes. And I was just thinking when you were saying that, kind of yoking it to eating disorder symptoms, what happens if a patient engages in more symptoms when we're separate? Mm -hmm. What happens? That has never happened ever. (laughs) That's never happened. We've never expressed anything through symptoms or acted on our feelings. So even kind of talking about like, let's anticipate what might happen, Mm -hmm. right? So you kind of, right. You might be upset. You might feel lonely. Mm -hmm. What are ways, patterns that maybe you've responded to that in the past? And I don't know, might you feel angry and say, you're not here. So I don't care. It's just so hard for me to feel this way. You know, what I know that's quote unquote worked before I'm going to go back to, uh, and you're not here. Yeah. So even just going back to, to this idea of the rules of the game, uh, again, like just for lack of a better term, is that if we were the kind of clinician that either never took time off or when we took time off, we were always responding to our emails, you know, at least every single day and and just sort of like not really creating that separation that's actually very well needed, but also information, then we're never presented with a situation like this. And we are doing our people a tremendous disservice. Yeah, what a good point. Even if it might feel like, you know, we're doing that to help, Mm -hmm. it may be because we feel anxious. And, right, not that we don't care, but I sort of have this overarching faith that no matter what, we'll be able to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not afraid of what will happen. Right. Even if you are, I'm not afraid because... I'm coming back. I mean, I think that's the other important part. Yes. I'm coming back. I'm not going away for it. It may feel that way, but I'm coming back. And so if you are, like you're saying, kind of uh, muddying the waters, you don't get the chance to say, well, what really happened? What do we know about this? How do we approach this at the next separation? <laughs> you know, we have a chance to quote unquote master it. We have, we might yeah. repeat it in order to work through it and do it differently. Mm -hmm. And 
maybe we both have to tolerate the anxiety of separation at the same time. Yeah, I think ultimately what happens very often in therapy, but for sure outside in other relationships is that because we're anxious about certain outcomes that we're either anticipating or just afraid that they might happen is then we do this, I guess, also for lack of a better term, this dance of trying to avoid something. Whereas if we actually did the thing, then we're presented with an opportunity to be really scared, but also, you know, get through it. To know it. Well, I think that's an excellent point. I mean, I think there's a resilience that can come from it. Maybe it's not as scary as you think. Mm -hmm. Maybe you underestimate your ability to get through it. And so in that avoidance, like you're saying, you'll never know. Even though that uncertainty initially may feel unbearable, we're in the business of trying to know and then go back to that frame and explore together and understand more. Yeah. I get this question very often from listeners about, you know, they know me, I'm trying to understand the deeper meaning of things and how our past informs our present. And and a lot of people are like, okay, so maybe I've made all these connections. I've explored my past. I understand how it's informing my present, but now what? Nothing is changing. And I think this is one way to do the now what, because I think, A, there's only so far that information can take us uh, when it's not experiential and not really embodied. But when we think about somebody who's in therapy, who's experiencing the therapist as leaving or they're afraid of something or they lash out at them because of whatever it is, part of the opportunity that we have is, okay, how do you experience this? What is it reminding you of? And how are we taking this beyond our relationship to the rest of your life? Not just like partners and friends in your present life, but also significant relationships in your past life. And here's an opportunity for us to take this away from the intellectualization of it and into the moment. And how do you feel right now? What a great distinction. It's not a cognitive exercise, right? It's an experiential one for two, for both people. And we stay in it together. Nobody hopefully runs out of the room. Maybe they run out of the room and, you know, sort of withdraw, but we stay with it. And so this is something happening internally between two people who are willing to hang in there and talk about it. Mm-hmm. And you don't get that often in the the outside frame world. Or if right. you do, you know, that's an opportunity. But I think also what can ultimately happen is it deepens a relationship. Absolutely. Right? So if we're afraid bringing up conflict or talking about painful things, you know, will cause the relationship, you know, to fracture or break, we're going to redo that script together. Mm -hmm. And you could talk about it, read about it, but it's not the same as going through it with someone. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes this approach to therapy very special. Yeah. And like we're saying, it can get messy. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not easy. It requires courage. There's uncertainty. You're taking new risks. But the way change happens is in a relationship in real time. Yeah. So that brings me to another rule of the game yeah. is the commitment 
to making this work. And I'm not saying like you meet with someone once and that's it, you have to see them for years because there's a commitment. But I think once you resolve or just come to an understanding that this is a relationship that could work um, after an assessment period, there needs to be some sort of commitment to therapy. Yes. And that is, yes, I'm going to come every single week. I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay on time. I'm not going to cancel. I'm not going to come late. I mean, like all of those things are part of the rules, but also a commitment to working through things through. If I'm angry and I feel like I want to bounce and you're not the right person for me for lots of different reasons that I can come up with that has nothing to do with the fact that you hurt me, I'm still going to come and I'm still going to talk and I'm not going to run away. I think that that is something that really doesn't get highlighted enough is this emotional commitment to do this kind of work. I really like how you said that. One way I try to anticipate that is at the outset to say, we might anticipate we're going to hit some bumps. Mm -hmm. Our approach would be if we hit those, we come back together a couple times. I think it helps to know on the front end and even predict that we will find ourselves at a place where you may have these strong feelings and like you said, want to bounce, want to not show up. So we make a commitment and we say part of this kind of contract rules of the game is that we'll come back together. And I like to just sometimes say a couple times, you know, because it might be scary to think indefinitely, at least initially. Mm -hmm. So we can try to do this differently than it's been done before. And knowing that that may happen, we can say, hey, we thought we might get here at some point. Let's stick with it. If you feel like you want to cancel... Try to fight that urge. If it's difficult to come in, can we commit to coming to the waiting room? You know, we we recognize this is going to be a hurdle and we can predict it at the same time. Uh, And I don't know, tell me what you think, Raquel. I don't think I've had a therapy where we haven't had a time like that. Maybe we've had a lot of times like that, but I don't think I've ever had the experience Because if you're in a relationship, you will have one with conflict, Mm -hmm. disagreement, confusion. But I sometimes think it's the most meaningful work. I would be concerned if we didn't have that. Yes, that's what I was going to say. That I have had experiences without it. And I mostly thought that there was something really big that was missing. And, you know, just sort of for my own understanding, trying to understand what might be missing that we didn't have that sort of conflict, because like you said, mm-hmm. it's expected. And it's funny because sometimes in the beginning, I sort of put this out there and people look at me like I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, what if I'm angry at you? Like, would I... Because I asked the question like, oh, if you were angry, would you feel comfortable saying? And they're like, what? why would I ever be angry at you? I'm like, Wait and see. <laughs> sometimes they're like, oh, this is what you mean. Um, and, I, you know, it's not as dramatic as it sounds. Sometimes it is and sometimes it isn't. But I think... Right. You know, when, you know, referring to your living lab idea that this, because we're living and because this is fluid and this is a dance and this is relationships, in order for it to work, there needs to be conflict and there needs to be resolution. So talking about it 
and learning from this experience, like not running away, but coming and talking about how you wanted to run away. What a great point. And for a therapist to be able to, because we're not perfect, say, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah. I didn't get that. I didn't get that. I missed that. Tell me what what I got wrong. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, and I wanted to clarify, we're not doing things deliberately to provoke this. I not hope that we not. I hope <laughs> not. But we find ourselves in landmines too. Wow. I didn't understand that, but now I do. And I'm going to be more mindful. Mm-hmm. If that comes up again, do you think you could tell me? Yeah. So I think it's an opportunity for both people to be vulnerable too. And it's hard. I think that that can be hard. And it, it might be micro. It might be micro. And it might be something, you know, I felt you were distracted in my session. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For a therapist to say, you know, actually, I was a little distracted. I think it might be this, but I think it could be that. You know, what ideas do you have? So mm-hmm. it's not just on the patient to write, bring that in. Yes. And the therapist can write, offer, well, yeah, I actually, I was tired, but I think it's important that you thought you were saying things that I wasn't finding interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think this sort of circles back to some of the other points that we were saying in that it is on us as, you know, when we're in the provider chair to take care of whatever is going on for ourselves so that if it's making us increasingly distracted or really tired, that we make sure that we come to work with a certain level of energy, emotional energy, physical energy, to be able to pay attention to the people who are sharing so much with us. And we aren't perfect. So yes, there has to be room for us to talk, especially if we are distracted, whether it's looking at the time or whatever it is, there has to be room for conversation. And I think part of what's so valuable about this is that when we do make mistakes, we have the capacity to apologize. So I'm not saying in any way that part of the frame is the therapist you know, always keeping to it because there is there is a lot of validity and richness into when it is broken to be able to repair it. But I think the ability to come back and have the conversation is ultimately the most important thing. And maybe you can speak to this for a second also is that this is almost the hallmark of an eating disorder is that we use an eating disorder to communicate. Absolutely. And eating disorders, tell me if you agree with this too, live in secret. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if we're expressing ourselves through our bodies or we're sort of cutting off the feeling and we're doing that secretively, it's just, it's happening in isolation. If we can bring that out, sort of contain the symptom, what's left? What's left? And then I'm talking about it in relationship. I'm not solving this problem, quote unquote, on my own. I'm doing it with somebody else and I'm not alone. And I think often because these behaviors happen in isolation and secrecy, you know, because reaching out is more dangerous at times, this is turning the sort of world on its head. Right. But I don't know about you. I feel hopeful. I feel hopeful that everyone has that ability, even if it's nascent, even if it's new, but it's fundamental to how we understand ourselves and relate to other people. Yeah. We just have a couple of minutes left, so I don't know if we can get to all of this, but I I have a question um, about, you know, let's say I'm sitting in the client seat and I'm curious about you, not in in an intrusive way or anything. I'm just sharing so much about my personal life 
and I don't know you. Um, I know what you look like and what you sound like and your personality kind of, but that's about it. And so I'm curious about your life, whether it's, you know, specific questions, more general questions. How is the idea of me not asking questions part of this frame or part of the rules that we're talking about? Yes. I'm going to turn it sideways and suggest asking the questions are part of the frame. Okay. Because they're the outline. You want to maybe see what happens if you get to that edge or touch it. Okay. Our role is to say, let's not go over it. Let's see what happens if we get as close to it as possible. What does that feel like? It's not that, and I've shared this before with patients, it's not that I don't want to share this with you, but in this treatment approach, we want to understand how your mind works. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that's something you want to know? Why do you think, why would it be important to have information about how many pets I have? Mm -hmm. And how do you feel that that might not be something I'd be sharing? Um, I'm not sharing it because I... I don't want to feel closer to you or, you know, I I don't share anything. And I think another piece to this, which can maybe be overlooked, is patients know us better than they think. Mm -hmm. They know what we respond to. They know what we don't talk about. They know if we really want to get radical. We communicate unconsciously all the time. Absolutely. Mentally, somatically. So we might seem like a complete mystery, but there is an intimacy that they know about us that maybe nobody else does. So the questions are a chance for us to understand how your mind works and what you imagine and why a question like that is important. Mm -hmm. And that's going to differ for everybody. Yeah. I think it can be painful, though, when a therapist doesn't share that because it can feel like a rejection. Mm -hmm. So, you know, another thing maybe at the outset is to outline the way you're describing it. You probably will have questions. You may want to know more about me. You may not want to know anything about me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the timing of those questions is interesting too. Yeah. I wonder why now, right? You're wondering if I have a partner. I wonder why, you know, you're wanting to know where I'm going away to. And so... It's a sort of, it can be a sensitive spot, but a, like you're saying, a rich spot too. Mm-hmm. And it's our job to keep that frame, no matter how much you want, how close you get, you know, even if you want to bang the paintbrush against it, that's our job to be the keeper of. Yeah. And like you're saying, depending on who's asking and how they're asking, when they're asking, all the rest of the pieces of context will help us understand how to understand the question or series of questions. What if it's like a, I just don't feel like I can be close to you unless I know more and more and more. So it's not about this one individual question, but it's about learning where the question is coming from and more about who's asking it. And then also it doesn't exclude the actual answer coming later, if that's appropriate. I think that's true too. If it feels like holding that mystery is so anxiety provoking, maybe we talk about, you know, what it would be like to know part of that. Mm-hmm. Maybe we talk about what it feels like that that might be something I, I want to keep private. Mm-hmm. I think another thing, maybe circling back to that idea of patients with eating disorders being parentified, needing to take care of other people, 
some of the motivation could be, I feel like in order for you to take care of me, I have to take care of you and ask questions and know about your life. Mm -hmm. I want to know what to be sensitive to. Yeah. Or I can't just accept help without giving something back. Yeah. And so even the question is sort of, it's not the question, it's what behind, like we're saying, what's behind the question. Yeah. And what that might be uh, modeling in a way. So for us to say, right, you don't, you don't need to ask about me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. Just in the interest of time, we're going to wrap up here. Obviously, there is so much more to this conversation. And I I think what's important is here, if anybody has any follow-up questions or any comments, or if this has brought some things to light, you know, to let us know. And everybody knows how to find me. Just, you know, for sure, just to to share some of your thoughts. Because I think that when we talk about the rules of this particular game, it's uh, sometimes it gets subjective, like how people want to see therapy and how they've done it in the past and how people have done it with them. And yeah, it, it gets really tricky. And so I welcome any disagreement or agreement. Just let me know where you guys are. <laughs> right. What's worked and what hasn't. Exactly. So before I yeah. let you go, and uh, thank you so much for coming on. This was lovely. This has been a treat. Can you share with our listeners where they can find you? Yes. So I practice out of Boulder County, Colorado, not the East Coast, where I'm from. You can always look me up by my website, Dr. Dana Satir, D-A-N-A-S-A-T-R.com. You can also email me, psychotherapy at D-R-D-A-N-A-S-A-T-I-R. I think to me, you know, the way other people are learning about this process, I'm humble when learning too. So like you, I welcome questions. I welcome comments. I welcome challenges. Yes. And all this information helps you put out more content. And, and I love your article. So for a chance to throw a really big curveball Dina's way, just send it. I'm ready. I'm you ready. Won't be, you won't be sorry. <laughs> I won't be sorry. I'll contain it in my email. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you again. Thank you so much. You made it to the end. Thank you for listening. Every single one of your downloads means so much to me. If this conversation is leaving you wanting more, be sure to sign up for my newsletter. You'll have the opportunity to reply back directly to me over there. Can't wait.